Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. I'm sorry for being a bit late with this, but oh boy. Crazy things have happened in Russia. Yeah, this is a game changer. This is something so new and interesting that, like I said before, in 2024, the Russia that you know today will be gone in one way or another. Now, I believe it will still fall apart eventually, but, well, there are reforms about whom we're gonna talk today, because... Some very interesting things happened. You see, in uh, his annual address to the Federal Assembly, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced quite a radical series of constitutional reforms. Now, interestingly enough, uh, I looked them up and a couple of people, my colleagues from Medusa, are calling them a modest proposal. If you've read Jonathan Swift and, and know his nice little essay, named the same way, you understand where this is going. So... Here's what he wants to change, I'll just read through the list, this is a quite short one, and then we're gonna go through and analyze what actually happened here. He, first of all, wants to limit the supremacy of international law, then he wants to amend the procedure for appointing Russia's ministerial cabinet, and now the president names the prime minister, deputy ministers and ministers, but the parliament will do that in the future. He wants to amend the procedure for appointing the heads of security agencies. The president will make these appointments after consultations with the Federation Council. He wants to amend the clause limiting presidents to two consecutive terms. He wants to raise the residency requirements for presidential candidates from 10 to 25 years. He wants to ban foreign citizenship and foreign residency permits for judges, heads of federal subjects including governors and some mayors, federal lawmakers, and government cabinet members. He wants to strengthen these restrictions on the head of state, prohibiting presidential candidates who have held foreign citizenship or foreign residency permits in the past, and not just at the time of an election. He wants to make the state council advisory body a government agency formally enshrined in the constitution. He wants to grant the Federation Council the right to remove judges from the Constitutional and Supreme Courts. The President will initiate these dismissals in responsible to quote-unquote dishonorable acts. He wants to give Constitutional Court the right to review the constitutionality of federal laws before they are signed by the head of state. The president will initiate these reviews. And finally, he wants to establish the mandatory indexing of social security and minimum wage payments to Russia's poverty line. Now, here are some uh, interesting things, basically, because all of these changes take a bit of understanding to understand what's, what's going on here. A lot of people, including myself, are treating this thing as the beginning of the transfer of power. But we have to go deeper through this and go through this step by step because, well, I waited a bit and uh, there are some changes with this because, well, Putin just gave these whole ideas to Gosduma right now because they're rushing through with this. It was thought that there would be a referendum about this matter in September because, you know, you have to have time to prepare But recently it's been found out that, no, 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 they intend to make all these constitutional amends already in May. That is way, way closer than in September. 
up until September, you know, a lot of things can change. For example, another Black August could happen. So, basically, Putin has now just given all of this to Gosduma, but there are some tiny little changes here from his original ideas. But we'll still go through what he said eventually and analyze this a bit further. Basically, constitution of Russia, let's start with the obvious thing, the supremacy of international deals and laws over your normal ones. This basically means that a government is forced to obey to various treaties signed and adhere to international courts and United Nations on, on various things. Basically, it states that if your government has signed something which your own country laws say that isn't so, then, well, tough luck. Now, it turns out that Mr. Putin cannot change this thing because this specific article, Article 15, which guarantees this primacy of international law over the standard one, because, you know, that includes international treaties, basically. You can't change it with just some um, little shifts in the Constitution, Russian constitution states that this can be changed only by writing a completely new constitution. So, Russian government will just allow itself just not to use various specific uh, decisions made by various international agencies. For this, the Russian constitutional court judges will be... Uh, it will be enough for them to just uh, say that, oh no, this specific decision or treaty uh, violates Russia's constitutional interests. And basically that they are be gonna like cancelled out and Russia will just say, oh no, this is a, it's a wrong decision basically and we will not do anything about it. Which means that if the Minsk treaties would be, you know, moving forward with Ukraine, Russia could just declare that, oh no, those, those Normandy format discussions or Minsk treaties, yeah, we don't care. And by the way, they are already doing that only when it comes to decisions of uh, European Court of Human Rights because... Russia's been sort of forced to pay a lot of money to people who win this court, because they are a signatory state of that. And Russia has just been ignoring this by saying that, oh no, 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 this, this independent European court, considered the final arbiter of human rights issues in Europe, yeah, they're just wrong. They've been wrong for a lot of times, and Russia just blatantly ignores Whatever this court says, one of the loudest such cases was when the European court stated that, well, obviously, looking at all the documents and everything, Mr. Navalny should get registered for running for president in 2018, and then, obviously, he wasn't, because, well, no one really cared. Second thing is that, in his speech, Mr. Putin basically stated that he wanted to delete this word two terms in a row. What Putin said was, quote, the constitutional provision granting that a single individual may not occupy the post of president of the Russian Federation for more than two terms in a row has been under discussion in our society. I don't believe it's an essential question, but I do agree. During a uh, December 2019 press conference previously, he had also mentioned that the word padriat, or in a row, could be removable from the constitution, leaving any future president to serve no more than two terms, period. Now, what this really means is that Putin's insistence that the question of presidential term limits is not essential appears to, to basically give Russian society, or its lawmakers, kind of wiggle room to decide the question themselves. His address also included a note of ambiguity. What does Putin agree with? The constitutional clause that includes the word padriat, or in a row, or the public discussion putting that clause in doubt? Despite this kind of utter lack of clarity on this issue, a Russian politologist, Alexei Makarkin, believes there can be no doubt that Putin is openly advocating for the elimination of the inner loophole. Quote, This is a clear limitation on the terms of his successor, whomever that person may be. The successor will work for 12 years at most, without using a placeholder like Putin did. End quote. Now, the biggest issue here is that this is the first sign that something's happening, because, as we all know, Putin does not want to go anywhere, really. And we'll get into that sooner or later. Basically, he wants to, as he did previously, by the way, after his first two terms were closing on at an end, he also shifted all the balance of power from president to prime minister. Well, mostly. Then he became the prime minister. Uh, Medvedev became a very weakened president. Then he served as president for a single term. Putin came back into power and just shifted all the powers and responsibilities back from the prime minister to the president. It doesn't matter what the office is. What matters is that the power lies within the office that Putin plans on taking. 
And even though it sort of looks like that Putin does not intend to hold up to the massive level of power that he has right now, he still wants to hold a lot of sway and a lot of say in what's gonna happen in Russia, even after 2024. So he's making a nice little cushy position for himself, which he's going to gradually increase in this Gossoviet Bezopasnosti, or the State Council of Security, basically. Well, which is, by the way, Medvedev, who is now... Spoiler alert, all the cabinet of ministers was fired, and the Russia has now a new prime minister, who, by the way, is the previous head of the Russian IRS, but Medvedev has now been, like, shifted from prime minister to this position, which is still pretty weak, but I'm sure that we'll see much more increases of this whole situation. Now, how exactly this council will work, yeah, it's gonna be interesting, but about the current state of these, like, two things, yeah, two terms in a row was what allowed Putin to come back after this one term. But it does seem extremely hypocritical and, like, awful, because, yeah, you know, Putin has abused the system himself so much. He's been the guy who's been abusing this in a row statement, and now when he's in his sort of final-ish term, then he wants to delete it. Because, obviously, well, Putin needs to have the power, not some other president, you see. So there's a certain shift of power. Let's look at that part a bit closer. So let's see now what powers he's giving away to his future positions and what he wants to do. Well, Russia's parliament will become a bit stronger, but by no means a parliamentary republic. For now. Putin said that the state Duma's authority will be expanded. Russia's lower house of parliament will not only confirm the prime minister as it does now, it will also confirm every vice premier and minister the head of government appoints. In 2019, State Duma Speaker Vyacheslav Volodin came forward with a similar set of proposals for the Duma's powers. Following the State Duma's votes, Putin suggested the president should be obligated to approve any confirmed candidates without a veto power. Meanwhile, under the new proposals, the president would have to consult with the Federation Council before making appointments to leading security positions or choosing regional prosecutors. Senators may also receive the ability to remove constitutional court justices from power. Now, knowing how uh, these things are elected and how honest and fair the elections are, basically this means that, well, in general, Putin is somewhat expanding his control over the courts, just doing it via a proxy and making sure that his successor, if any, will basically have some limited control if Putin will still be able to control the parliament. Political scientist Alexei Makarkin, again, a nice fellow, using him a lot here, believes that none of this will turn Russia into a parliamentary republic, obviously. Quote, A super-presidential republic is turning into one that's merely presidential, end quote, he suggested. Now, I obviously read through Medusa, because they are my good and honest friends and colleagues over in Lafayette and Riga, so, a source close to the president's administration, who apparently is familiar with the discussions surrounding the reforms, told my buddies in Medusa that the State Duma's role will not be significantly strengthened at all. Quote, some set of decisions, including financial decisions, might be transferred to the State Council, so the State Duma wouldn't be such a strong independent body, and the deputy's influence won't get any stronger either. End quote. According to another political scientist, Grigory Golosov, parliamentarians might start seeing more personal lobbying opportunities when ministers are appointed, but those appointments still won't be determined by parliamentary politics. Quote, the parliament's political role will see almost no changes. They used to confirm the premier, now they'll confirm ministers too. That won't make Russia a parliamentary republic. In the United States, the Senate also confirms individual officials, but it's still a presidential republic. End quote. Another commentator on this matter, Kirill Rogov, proposed that the address implies a sort of renunciation of the idea of extending the president's powers along the same script that has been popular in CIS countries in Central Asia, where presidents stay in power indefinitely, getting re-elected again and again. However, uh, this is quite unlikely, because we'll get to that a bit later. I'll continue with the quote. That renunciation happened in a way that favors a model where powers are redistributed among various government bodies. The idea is that some of those powers will go to the Duma, the Federation Council, and maybe the State Council, Rogov explained. However, he said, that scheme typically relies on the existence of a one-party dictatorship that continues for several decades. If the scheme Putin has suggested follows that tradition, it would kind of contradict the personally based model of power that he himself has built. 
but we'll, we'll see why this is happening later on. But what this ensures is that even Putin will no longer be the president. That yes, yes, obviously he will stay in power. What, what did you expect? If that is, there will be a place for him to stay. Which is another kind of ominous thing, because a lot of opposition journalists on YouTube and commentators also state that they're running all this kind of new referendum already in May, because by September, the quality of life in Russia might drop even further, and people, as usual in August and September, are more keen to protests and various actions, and it will be easier to get the people mobilized and get them to vote as the government needs for these reforms in May, and the state apparatus will also be mobilized. And that means that it'll be easier to push this through, through some method of obfuscation, and, you know, a lot of people just don't critically analyze the news, so it might as well go through. Now, the state council thing, which currently looks like the Putin will occupy the chairman position off after his presidency. Yeah, this will be an important constitutionally recognized body, and, yeah, uh, most commentators agree that this is going to be likely a retirement home for Putin. Putin stated that he wants to see, quote, a drastic elevation of the role of governors in developing and making decisions on the federal level. Now, Putin himself created the state council. See, Russia has Gosduma and Federation Council. Federation Council is where the senators are, and the state Gosduma is kind of like Congress, basically. So Putin made this state council thing, because that's sort of an advisory body. Technically, president currently serves as the council's chair, which he'll probably continue to serve. State council is the forum where regional government heads work and consult each other and the president. Aside from the president, the council includes the speakers of the state Duma and the federation council, along with the leaders of every Duma faction, all regional governors, and some formal regional governors appointed by the president. And if you listen to my episode about how state governors are put into office in a nice little process formerly known as elections, then, well, obviously, Putin just runs it with, a, with personal contacts, much less than with his presidential authority. And now he basically intends to kind of give some power on their own to this formerly, currently advisory thing. Putin suggested codifying a corresponding status and the role for the state council in Russia's constitution. He did not yet specify what that role might be, but he had previously noted that the state council, quote, has displayed a high level of efficacy and its working groups provide professional, comprehensive and high-quality consideration of the issues most important to our citizens and our country. Obviously, basically, they do nothing and now put in the stuffing all the power in them. The state council currently operates as this public forum for discussing policy matters in Putin's presence. And the individual responsible for the administration's ongoing work with that forum is, currently, Deputy Chief of Staff Sergei Kirienko. In the last several months, state council hearings have taken the form of public brainstorming sessions that receive extensive media coverage in state-run and state-controlled sources. The bureau responsible for the state council's logistics is led by one Alexander Kharichev, a close ally of Kirienko's. That bureau doesn't just manage the council's hearings, it runs the selection process for gubernatorial candidates and curates their campaigns. Basically, state council is run and operated by our buddies' buddies who make sure that only the people they like could get on the state council. What a democratic institution that is! Happiness increases, comrades. Morale is getting higher with every possible minute. According to another source close to Putin's administration, the idea of granting the state council a higher status and greater powers has been under development for some time already, and so far, the predominant assumption has been that Putin, personally, should lead the body. That would require not only strengthening the council's role, but creating a new appointment system for its chair. Currently, the president receives that role, well, officially, meaning that Putin's hold on it is likely temporary given the events of January 15. The president's administration has not yet produced any specific documents proposing reforms along these lines. Now, my source did emphasize that the council will not be the country's highest executive authority. Its chair will not be more important than the president. The current head of government, that is Putin, does not plan to preserve the whole breadth of his power, but he does want to influence government processes indefinitely." End quote. And yeah, political scientist Alexei Makarkin said that state council couldn't become a new Politburo for another reason as well. Quote, It's a body that meets on a non-perpetual basis. Giving it new powers won't change much here. 
The foundation of the state council is the governors, and they have to work first and foremost in their own regions. Grigory Golosov, however, called the state council's new role one of the most fundamental changes Putin proposed, and believes it may become a political problem. Quote, it will be dangerous if there is a clause in the constitution about the state council that doesn't designate specific powers. In that case, constitutional law could allow any kind of authority whatsoever to be written into that new body's role, which would allow Vladimir Putin to hold on to real power even after ending being president. Alexei Makarkin said he personally doesn't rule out the possibility of Putin occupying some other high-status role as well, such as the chairmanship of a ruling political party. So basically, like I said before... Putin is nicely consolidating power, softly and slowly, away from the president and into whatever new office he's probably gonna hold for a while now. And this whole state council thing, and why Putin is doing this, is, I think, also fairly obvious. Because, you see, Putin is getting old. I mean, he's gonna be 72 in 2024? Like, he's really old. Officially, Putin is uh, 68, or, or 70, because, again, we know that he has doubles, and those doubles are a slightly different age from him. He's just constantly getting plastic operations, and he has Botox, and, like, injected everywhere. Putin is older than he looks. Like, a lot older than he looks. Now, the thing is, he also might want to retire, but remember that when we speak about Putin, we're not speaking only about his own single personal rule. Uh, after all, Russia is more or less a criminal oligarchy. There's also Ramzan Kadyrov and, and this same Kirienko and all the other nice little people surrounding Putin. This little clique of oligarchs, which you can easily spot if you open up any list of, well, which officials are uh, under foreign sanctions, or if you just open Forbes magazine and look at the top 100 wealthiest people on the planet Earth, and if you spot a Russian name in there, maybe except Khodorkovsky, because he's, like, outside of Russia, and he's persecuted there, and he fled the country. But basically, if you see someone on that Forbes Hop 100 uh, richest people on the planet list, they are most likely in the clique. And what this clique, this collective Putin wants, is to hold on to the power, squeeze as much from the collapsing Russian economy at the expense of the people there, and just make sure that they can, you know, after the going gets bad, because... Well, everyone expects it to get bad at some point, because, you know, you can only collapse and abuse an economy so far before the people really start, you know, starving. And uh, according to some sources, Russia's oil situation is going to get way worse in 2021, since at the second half of 2021, apparently 40% of uh, Russia's oil operations, places where they extract oil, shall basically cease to function because they were kind of established already in Soviet era and have been running and they'll just run dry and they lack the technologies to create new sources of oil. Russia has a lot of oil, they just don't have the technology to acquire it. For example, they really can't do anything in the Russian waters, you know, and the northern seas. Because, like I said, Russia currently lacks the technology to do so, and even if they would have the technology somehow smuggled in, then the sheer razrucha, or the destruction of current political and economical system in Russia, would just not allow for this to happen. So, it is expected that by the second half of 2021, Russia's economical situation will get way worse, and a bunch of political commentators speculate that this is where kind of people will actually start to starve even more, and as my colleague Dmitry Potapenko stated that that might be the point where the refrigerator finally beats the television because the television in Russia only states that everything's going smoothly and fine and it is only the evil West that are continuously destroying Mother Russia and that Obama or Trump or whatever, or Obama-Trump, as they sometimes get combined, you know, because it's been 20 years for Putin, not like they care who's ruling the United States at this point, yeah, that they're responsible for the lack of everything there. And Putin, by that point, will likely need someone to take the fall for him, so that, you know, president is less responsible for these things, even though he set them up personally, in the interests of this collective Putin. So he'll just assign someone to take the fall. That'll probably be either Medvedev or Mishulin, the new prime minister, and then Putin will just be the good czar once again. And, by the way, his kind of um, forced resignation of Dmitry Medvedev, the, well, now ex-Prime Minister of Russia, also shows a bit of something, because Russia recently had a pension reform which increased the retirement age 
by five years and without any transition period. Now, if you know something about France, then you would know that in France they try to increase the retirement age by just two years, and only in some special cases, and Macron tried to unify the pension system, and it ended up with massive protests and strikes and whatnot. In Russia, they did this five-year increase, which, knowing the uh, way lower life expectancy in Russia in comparison to Western countries, was quite a tragic blow because it was expected that about 53% of males would not even live to the retirement age. Like, more than half of people wouldn't live to reach the retirement age in Russia, at about like 47% of women, which is crazy. And this decision was extremely unpopular, same as their increasing prices on gasoline, which in Russia, a major oil exporting country, should be super cheap, but it's getting more expensive, obviously. They also increased their value-added tax, which is, well, somewhat similar to sales tax, my American listeners. Yeah, all of these very unpopular things that the Russian government did in its reforms to try and squeeze out more money from its people. By the way, like I said, run and administrated by now current Prime Minister Mishulin, who used to be the head of the IRS and was very extremely proud that he had squeezed every last penny out of everyone. He publicly bragged about it. Yeah, you know, Medvedev took the hit. And in some circles, in the circles of people who kind of, you know, still have this mentality of uh, the good czar and the bad boyars, yeah, Putin, you know, sent Medvedev out, and Medvedev took the hit, and now Putin is kind of clean and nice again, and his ratings will start to pop up once again. So, well, that's gonna be a nice little fun political trick. You see, Putin is many things, but he's kind of not stupid. And in doing so, in doing all these reforms, and doing this, yeah, basically he just tries to ensure that he can retire in a nice little uh, spot where he still holds enough political sway as to not get persecuted, because, well, obviously such positions in this new state council would come with a nice little clause which would state that you are kind of immune to uh, prosecution by, you know, to be prosecuted uh, you would need some sort of approval from the rest of the members of Gosduma or of the state council or of the federation council, whatever. Basically, he tries to avoid persecution in his country if for some reason some other people come into power, and he also kind of wants to, well, finally enjoy his rest and spend his vast, vast monetary resources that he has accumulated, because, well, even though nobody knows about his actual financial status, it is, well, quite well-based and, and rumored and speculated that he might be, if not the richest man on the planet, then definitely on the leagues of Jeff Bezos, without a doubt. So, well, and this also allowed this collective Putin to continue basically skimming off uh, the people and live in prosperity, while everyone else basically is starving. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for a new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to our Patreons. If you're not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to patreon.com slash theeasternborder to find out how you too can support our show. To keep up to date with all things Eastern Border, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And don't hesitate to send us a message with your comments and questions. That's it for now. Thank you for listening and see you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, 
even with this weaker presidency position, which Putin does not intend to take anymore, the collective Putin, this whole clique of oligarchs, would still need someone from their own circle to take this place, you know, just to make sure that things are running business-as-usual style, and that there are no, well, <clears throat> interesting things going on there. So, again, Putin has taken care of this already. See, the Russian president would like for the constitution to mandate that any future candidate for his current post must have lived on Russian territory for at least 25 years and never held foreign citizenship or a foreign residency permit. This is important. As the constitution now stands, presidential candidates must have lived in Russia for at least 10 years and there is no provision restricting the presidency based on previous citizenship or residency abroad. What this really means is a very specific scalpelish kind of move because among the most prominent russian political figures who hold foreign residency permits is well mikhail hodorkovsky a former oil tycoon and opposition oligarch who has the right to reside in switzerland the thing is that hodorkovsky is not without his own faults but he's a major opposition candidate who spent some time when his private uh, yukos thing was disbanded and added to gazprom and he ran into a lot of conflicts other political emigres or aspiring politicians who lived abroad may have similar permits. For example, and this is important, prominent opposition politician Alexei Navalny. Yeah, he studied in Yale, and he received a student visa granting temporary residency for, you know, his studies in Yale. And it's very unclear if these new rules would even allow for technically these temporary residency stuff, because this basically means that no one in Russia, who had studied abroad in Europe or in somewhere in Asia or, or in Americas, if you've studied abroad and have acquired basically a student visa for the purposes of study, yeah, you no longer can be the president. Which is kind of a huge loss for Russia because, well, if you've received an education in one of the more prestigious universities in the world, outside of Russia, you would be kind of, I don't know, qualified to be the president. Like our current president of Latvia, Igils Levitz, and yes, we did see that SNL skit where he was kind of portrayed as a bit of a joke and a bit of a silly person who makes potato jokes and stuff, uh, but actually he's a he's an academician, a very kind of intellectual person, so he took that in, in good humor, which was interesting because, well, obviously no one in the SNL knows anything about Latvia or our president, but hey, well, at least Latvia got mentioned somewhere, and that's the most important part for your average Latvian. No one really was offended by it, but... Still, he also has studied abroad, so that's kind of interesting. And uh, another of our little political commentators here, Alexei Makarkin, stated that, quote, undesirable candidate wouldn't be allowed to compete anyway. But now they're formalizing the reasons. It's not as though the situation will change under the next president anyway. Now, though the limits will be official and they'll be secured by a nationwide vote. The only open question is how exactly the Russian government plans to demonstrate that a given individual had a foreign residency permit. See, current law asks citizens themselves to report their residency documents to the government or face administrative or criminal prosecution, but nobody really cares. Most people who are in this collective Putin thing, a lot of them are also citizens of, say, Cyprus or Malta or have, like, uh, international permanent residency rights, mostly in the EU, but a lot of them also have them in the United States. So, kind of interesting. Russia, despite this commentator, this one commentator that I mentioned in the beginning, is now shaping up to be a lot like Kazakhstan, and other of these even more bizarro pseudo-dictatorships, all the little stands. See, the president is aiming to expand the state council's role, much like Nursultan Nazarbayev strengthened the Security Council shortly before he resigned from Kazakhstan's presidency. Nazarbayev also leads Nur Otan, the ruling party, and his position as, quote, leader of the nation, end quote, which is called Yelbasi in Kazakhstani, is codified in the country's constitution. And, you see, in Kazakhstan, two blocks have formed the government's power structure. The president's bloc and the Nazarbayev's bloc and there is friction between them along certain lines. The bureaucracy hasn't fully determined there who's boss of the house and who will be making the primary decisions. It is clear, though, that this Yelbasi, or father of the nation, handed over the right to make unpopular economic decisions or domestic political decisions to the president wholesale while taking the right to strategic decisions in foreign relations and so on for himself. 
And in Russia, tensions like these are hardly possible because the nature of the Russian elite is uh, such that it falls before a new boss immediately and absolutely, until it comes to believe that the lion is completely senile. Commentator Grigory Golosov agreed that a scenario like Kazakhstan's could become relevant for the Russian government as well. Putin won't necessarily leave the presidency for the state council. It could be the security council too. I think he hasn't decided yet. There is this concept in politics of a veto player. Somebody who can put a stop to decisions or decisions can't be made without the approval. Putin intends to play that role, is what he argued and, well, which I kind of agree as well. But this still means that collective Putin is, well, keeping in power, if, again, major protest doesn't start out, but it is obvious from all of these changes and things that Putin is very much interested into figuring out a way how to keep Russia tighter, closer, and under this nice little clique of oligarchs' control. And still, Belarus is uh, on the table as well. It's unlikely, though, because, yeah, it previously looked like Belarus would stop existing, as... I made an episode about that very recently, but then, as this came out of the blue, completely out of the blue, by the way, and when I watched the Medvedev's resignation speech, it also looked super awkward, because, well, it seemed that Putin, when making these constitutional changes, he at the same time stated that, oh, no, we're going to have a new cabinet of ministers with a new prime minister, because, you know, we need someone new and, and cool to work on these new reforms, so the old government should just resign. And no one had told little beating boy Medvedev, who's now to take the blame for everything as he's residing and having a new place in this nice little security council, because he's about to become the prime Putin's deputy there. Yeah, um, no one told him about that, so he looked awkward and it was completely random. And also this Mishulian, at the same speech, basically, Putin also declared that, oh, and this is going to be your new prime minister. And think about it this way, normally to approve someone to be in such an important position as the Prime Minister, even though he has, like, not a lot of powers there, what this means is that the Russian Gosduma approved the, the, this new position unilaterally, basically. There were, like, 360 votes for uh, Mishulian as the new Prime Minister, and uh, 40 were abstaining, zero votes against. And that happened, like, a day later. There were no debates, no discussions, no analysis of who the guy was previously, what happened before. They just basically rubber-stamped Putin's spontaneous decision, whom he had hidden from everyone, including, well, Dmitry Medvedev himself. But yeah, this all came out of the blue, so, well, uh, up until this speech, I honestly thought that Putin is going to move in the way of unification with Belarus, because that seemed the most rational decision, and every aspect, well, portrayed towards this decision. However, I think Putin currently decided, with his troubles with Lukashenko, as Lukashenko is fighting back, not to put all the eggs in the same basket, and is now trying to basically diversify his options. As this is kind of harder to pull off without looking bad, but it's, you know, Belarus is still on the table. Because, like I said, not very long ago the possible unification of Russia and Belarus was a frequent topic of discussion in the Kremlin, where it was considered a viable option, like I said, to basically make Vladimir Putin president of this new government. And up until the end of 2019, like, everyone, even in the Putin's administration, described Belarusian unification as a realistic scenario, and some Russian bureaucrats spoke out publicly to argue for deeper integration between the two countries within the bounds of an existing agreement. Like, Medvedev did that. Meanwhile, in Belarus, protests emerged in opposition to unification with Russia, and the country's president, Alexander Lukashenko, was, well, basically forced to denounce that possibility. Now, commentator Kirill Rogov believes that current efforts to reformulate Russia's system of governance won't make an integration of Belarus impossible down the line. They could fit Belarusian scenario in the scheme, he said. Grigory Golosov, on the other hand, feels certain that such a move is almost impossible after what Lukashenko has said in recent months about preserving the country's sovereignty. He concludes that this is exactly the reason that they have started solving the 2024 problem, the problem of Putin staying in power, through... Uh, domestic policies. But I think that they could, like, still do both things, because, like I said, Crimea, even though that's a thing that, well, most people abroad and foreign countries do not approve of, well, it gained Putin a massive boost of popularity, because when presented Putin in his own propaganda as this gatherer of, of Russian lands, 
that gave Putin a major boost. Because whenever he needs a major boost, he just goes and grabs some land from someone else, and that, that gives him some popularity. And, well, Belarus might be necessary to call some riots or something and to ensure a nice little boost after everything goes sour. At the same time, you know, not like Russian people will protest that much because, well, and this is a kind of a little tangent, but one other thing that happened last week, just before the speech, was that Vladimir Zhirinovsky, the crazy court jester of Putin's, who basically is Putin's litmus test paper, Zhirinovsky openly blasts out in the open all sorts of silly things, testing out the public reaction to them, and then Putin basically puts them back in, in everyone's thoughts, in a more sane way. So what Zhirinovsky did was he just stepped out of Gosduma, where he works as leader of the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, which is nonsensical, to say the least, because that's the guy who's openly stated, like, throwing nukes to the United States and, and Europe and, like, everywhere. Well, Mr. Zhirinovsky, who's a leader of a fraction, of kind of this sanctioned opposition fraction of the Russian government, goes out of Gosduma and just starts handling out money to people. Like, thousand-ruble banknotes. And 60 rubles is about a dollar, so it's kind of like $20, 15 to $20 approximately, depends on the current rate. Well, he just goes out and starts giving out 1,000 ruble banknotes to everyone, and it already seems kind of bizarre, but he just, you know, openly states, hey, you pensioners, you have nothing to feed your kids with, here, have, have, some, have some cash. Hey, you holopi, or serfs and slaves, hey, serfs and slaves, come get some cash, your masters are giving it away. That's, that's not a joke. He, he literally said that poor starving people, state peasants, serfs and slaves, please come and take some money. Uh, that included retired people, everyone, and people just came and took the money too, and they, it was a kind of a shock, but Zhirinovsky, well, yeah, he does crazy stuff, but he had overblown this himself, and then he just on radio station says, oh, well, that was just a joke, everyone took it in good heart, right? And no one said anything. Imagine, basically, if, I don't know, Bernie Sanders would, or some other major Democrat uh, would just walk out on, on the street and start giving out 20 bucks to people, telling them that, oh no, hello, hello, my dear, dearest serfs, I'm taking care of you personally here. Social welfare, social welfare for the serfs and for the people. Or, you know, Republican people could do that too, but I'm, I'm using Democrats here because it's kind of the opposition party at this point. That would be just insane. But that happened. That literally happened, and no one found it bizarre. At the same time, there was also a recent kind of publication in a, where you could buy a Russian village with all the, all the people living in there, too, for like $300,000 or so. So, whatever, guys. Not like anyone there will particularly care. And it doesn't seem that the people will be too disappointed either. But Russia is now some sort of weird experiment that either the people will give away their freedoms and their rights, or they're going to have to try and do some nice little good old-fashioned revolution and protest actions. Seems that they'll have no other real way to do that. And after this immediate establishment of Mishulian as the new prime minister, a lot of commentators also stated that this rubber stamping just proves that any sort of election, any sort of lawful change in Russia has basically been deemed impossible because no one cares in the upper echelons of government about this thing. So... Even the more moderate of opposition candidates are now looking at the situation and they are now concluding that a kind of lawful internal reforms are getting more and more possible in Russia. So they're basically going to have to have a revolution if something is about to change. And uh, yeah, as the younger population of Russia are, well, quite keen on this idea and the economical position will worsen there. If they're going to have a revolution, Russia will not survive that. This is quite sad, but... I don't know. Sometimes I don't know, because they, they are going to have to take the matters in their own hands, basically, for the quality of life to improve there. But let's finish this episode up with the um, story of Medvedev himself. Because, like I said, he will now be a um, deputy chair of Russia's Security Council. Basically, this will make him deputy to Putin himself. Because Russia's primary security law dictates that the Security Council is always chaired by the president. Medvedev's former position, however, will be, well, Mikhail Mishustin which we're going to talk about in a future episode once he actually does something in the office, because he's an interesting persona who's from an IT sphere, whose wife owns 800 million rubles, which is a lot of money, from her business activities, even though she has no registered business. But that's a whole different story, and I don't know enough about Mishustin, I haven't researched enough to speak about him yet. But 
All of this matters because Medvedev is the one person who got assigned the role of taking the fall and taking the blame for the collective Putin. You know, he takes one for the team. Federation Council member Vladimir Jabarov has already compared Medvedev's new role to a kind of vice presidency. Nonetheless, again, sources close to Medvedev's government said that he knew nothing about Plaid's constitutional changes or about his upcoming job until, well, this address. The two agreed to the switch only afterward during a private meeting. As a head of government, Medvedev already had the uh, unofficial role in the Security Council and some of the council's members retained their positions even after Medvedev and his government resigned, including former Internal Affairs Minister Rashid Nurgaliyev and Sergei Ivanov, Putin's former chief of staff. And uh, sources state that Medvedev and Sergei Kirienko, Putin's deputy chief of staff that we mentioned previously, had been grappling for control of Russia's domestic politics. Medvedev wanted a guarantee that the United Russia Party, which he leads, and which dominates Russian politics nationwide, would receive a constitutional majority following the next state Duma elections. While Kirienko, also from the same internal Putin circle, advocated for several new parties to be pushed into the Duma in order to create a broad pro-Putin coalition and more of a resemblance of fairness, thus giving Putin more legitimacy. Basically, they want to switch away from this one-party model to more or less Belarus, where there's multiple parties, but all of them are pro-leader. So one pro-leader party, multiple pro-leader parties. They're all still pro-leader. Glorious. And ultimately, a number of individuals loyal to Kirienko joined United Russia's leadership team. Meanwhile, governors who ran with support from Putin's administration actively worked to promote their own agenda in the state council and their ideas contradicted those of the federal executive branch and even criticized Medvedev's cabinet openly. Because again, in many opposition channels, which are more conservative, in a Russian bizarro sense of the word, not what you guys in the United States would consider conservative, conservative can mean from extremely pro-Orthodox uh, religion to extremely pro-Stalin, and often in the same channels, by the way, or pro-Communist Party, yeah, in, in these opposition channels, which are often quite good predictions about Russia's economy, but they never criticize Putin themselves. Again, good czar, bad boyars, right? So, even those people who are very pro-Putin had been using Medvedev and his government as the beating boy for all the ills Russia is suffering through. So, this is kind of bizarre situation in Russia where the opposition parties also are just weird and some of them are, like, pro-Putin. It's crazy like that. As he resigned his prime minister's post, Medvedev stated that, quote, We as the government of the Russian Federation must present the president of our country with the opportunity to make all the necessary decisions, and in those circumstances I believe that it would be right in correspondence with Article 117 of the Russian Constitution for the government of the Russian Federation in its current composition to submit its resignation. Yeah, it sounded just as bad in Russian, by the way, and he was basically uh, pale, his eyes were shuddering, and he was like, what? Didn't know anything about it. Nonetheless, as higher school of economics constitutional law expert Ilya Shabinsky explained, quote, There are no legal reasons for the government's resignation, because none of the constitutional changes proposed and proposed obligate the current government to yield its authority. And Medvedev's appointment to the Security Council entails some legal obstacles. In the same security law that grants Putin the council's leadership, there is no provision establishing a role for a deputy chair. The law only provides for a chair, a secretary, which is another person of Putin's clique, Nikolai Patrushev, permanent members, and standard members. On one hand, Article 13 of that same law grants the president the duty of confirming a directive that sets the foundation for the Security Council's work, and Putin could theoretically into the deputy chair position in the directive. Immediately following the announcement of Medvedev's new political path, Putin clarified that, quote, if changes will have to be made to current law, he is prepared to make those changes. The fact that some formalities in the transition process have not yet been planned confirms that the events of January 15 developed spontaneously, as far as Medvedev is concerned, and also that neatly show that law is no obstacle for Mr. Putin. And exactly what powers Medvedev will have as Putin's deputy in the Security Council is also unclear. By law, this council is charged with preparing presidential decisions concerning security, foreign policy, the defense industry, and a military collaboration. The Security Council's powers are exclusively advisory, but its current secretary, Nikolai Patrushev, has a reputation as one of Russia's most influential siloviki. Siloviki in this case means security and intelligence officials, the power people. It's a slang for them, the, the people who run the cops and the army and the intelligence, all these kind of strengthy people, so to speak. Again, Russian slang. Siloviki, basically, that's the term for them. At least on paper, Medvedev will be above Patrushev in the council's hierarchy. 
In addition, as anonymous sources have told RIA Novosti, the former prime minister will retain his current position as the head of the United Russia Party. Political scientist Konstantin Gaza believes that the decision to transfer Medvedev to the Security Council was unplanned, because otherwise, what would the problem have been with sitting there till September preparing a referendum on these constitutional changes and resigning after that? Gaza told Medusa, my colleagues, that Medvedev likely has lost it and was unable to hold his ground as premier, making his new position no more than a golden parachute. However, Gaza said he could not rule out the possibility that Putin is sending Medvedev to oversee the same Siloviki who have, quote, drunk his blood over the last 10 years. Because Siloviki are another, like, little tower of Kremlin, their own uh, political structure there. Carnegie Moscow Center expert Tatiana Stanovaya called Medvedev a, quote, toxic figure, end quote. She said that, quote, I think Putin believed appointing him as, say, the get of Gazprom or the Constitutional Court would have been a relatively dangerous opinion because Medvedev sparks a lot of conflict and a significant portion of the elite does not accept him. Given Medvedev some kind of actual territory to work with, real authority to boot, it would have been dangerous for Putin himself, she said. On the other hand, Stanovaya said being Putin's deputy will give Medvedev a kind of protection. Anyone who attacks Medvedev will essentially be attacking the president. However, Stanovaya argued that the Security Council vice-chair is quite unlikely to have any significant legal powers. But regardless of his new position, Medvedev has the right to receive a number of benefits as Russia's former president, a role he filled from 2008 to 2012. Russian law guarantees former heads of government, state-provided security guards, public funding, and, well, benefits for family members. And former presidents also enjoy legal immunity, but importantly, that immunity can be revoked if the former president faces charges of committing a felony. Which he would probably do in case of literally anyone else who is not from the internal Putin circles running for president. Now, this is a very interesting time to be alive indeed. Very crazy topic, I would say. Russia is facing a lot of changes, and I'll be following them, of course, but I want to get back to the Soviet episodes, but hey, how can I do that when literal crazy insanity is happening before my eyes and... And when things like these are just exploding everywhere. So, well, let's hope that things improve for the average Russians. And thank you guys, thank you people who've sent me emails about this and with your own opinions. From Russia, that is. You're great, and I use you as my sources a lot. Of course, I analyze them beforehand, but let's see how this turns out. Because, well, things are just heating up in the 2020. It's a bizarre year indeed. Anyway, I'll squeeze in a historical episode this week as well, because this just took a lot of time, and we'll have something interesting planned for you next week. Until then, and see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.